How many of you, by raise of hands, would say you're susceptible to peer pressure? All right. I'm going to ask again. Maybe you weren't honest. Let's be honest. We are in church. How many of you would say you're susceptible to peer pressure? How many of you raised your hand the second time? That's right. See, peer pressure works. Peer pressure is defined this way. Influence from members of one's peer group. Peer pressure is real, and it's a challenge for a lot of us. And sadly, a lot of us think, oh, peer pressure is for my kids or teenagers or maybe, you know, when I was a kid. And certainly that is true. Maybe they're more susceptible to peer pressure than I am at 48 years old. But I can honestly tell you, I still have to wrestle with it. And if I'm a betting man, I would say that's true for all of us in here, that we still have this influence. We're not immune to the peer pressure. This is why it is so important to surround yourself with the right kind of people. And today we're going to look at a story in the Bible that at first look, you may not think it's peer pressure, but it's peer pressure by somebody you wouldn't think would still struggle with this. Some might even say, and it even says it in the verses we're going to look at, that this person's just a, a hypocrite. But really this person just falls into the idea of peer pressure. So with that in mind, I want everybody to get out your programs. And actually, if you did not get an insert or a program this morning, I encourage you to get one. They're in the back on both of these tables. This will be useful throughout the rest of the morning. It'll give you a chance to take some notes, and we'll have some questions on there. So grab your programs, grab a pen, get your journal out, or get your phones out even. I'm going to ask you some questions that I want you to jot down some answers. Come on, I don't see all of you moving. Let's get up and get something. Get a pen. Don't miss out on what God has for you, right? Get something to write. Now, how many of you waited till the second or third time I said something before you actually did it? See how effective peer pressure is. All right, here we go with the first question. You ready? Other than this morning, when was the last time you gave in to peer pressure? This morning doesn't count. When did you do something that was influenced by the group of people you were with. This doesn't have to be a bad thing either, by the way. Sometimes we call uh, peer pressure encouragement, right? Like, we, you can do it. We believe in you. How about this question? Where are you most likely to give in to peer pressure? Are there certain environments? What environments do you think you're more likely, if you're in those environments or situations, you're going to give in to peer pressure? You're going to find yourself doing something maybe you don't really want to do. I know this is like, pushing the envelope a little bit. Men, if you ever say anything like, hold my beer, that is one of those environments you've given into peer pressure. What group of people, here's the next question, what group of people tend to have, an, have influence on you to do things you normally wouldn't do? What group of people tend to have influence on you to do things you normally wouldn't do? They may not even have to say anything or ask you to do it. You just find yourself doing these other things. Here's some examples. You're like, what, what does that mean? Like, maybe with this group or in this environment, you drink more than you normally would. Maybe you find yourself gossiping. You're with this group of people, you tend to spend more money than you normally would, or you spend more time away from your family than you normally, normally would. Your humor crosses a line that it normally wouldn't cross. Maybe you ignore certain people. You act like you don't know them when you're with this group of people. You jump on the let's make fun of that person, whoever that is, that bandwagon. Maybe you flirt more. Maybe you cuss more. What are those things? Who are those people that influence you? Can you name them? Okay, last question. 
Where do you tend to use peer pressure the most? What environments do you find yourself using peer pressure to get people to do things? Is it at work? Is it with a certain group of friends? Who is it? Where is it? Now keep these questions nearby, and if you got the insert, all those questions are in the insert. We're going to keep those in the front of our mind as we look at today's story. But before we jump into the text, let's invite God to speak to us and challenge us this morning. Will you pray with me? God, just come right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. We, we just pray that you influence us. Help us to recognize the answers to some of those questions. Help us to keep that in the front of our minds as we look at the text and we see where this is an example. God, I would just ask you to come and convict us in those moments, free us from those, no shame, no guilt. Help us to walk freely in you in you, and the freedom you offer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Andy Rainey. If this is your first time joining us online or in person, we're glad you're here. We, in our, we are in our series, Go, Love, Live, where we're looking at different texts to really expand on this idea of what it means to go to the missing, love the marginalized, and live as God's kids. As one of his disciples, today we're headed to Galatians chapter 2, if you're following along in your Bibles. And of course, if you don't have a Bible, they're absolutely free in the back. Grab one as our gift to you. And there's an orange journal there. It's a great place to take notes as well. And you can literally get up right now. You're not going to impact me or distract me. We really want you to have what you need to get what God has for you this morning. While you're getting there, Let me kind of set the stage a little bit. The Apostle Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, specifically this book that we're we're looking at, he's the author of this letter, and he's going to use part of this letter to clarify and justify his position as an accepted apostle, teacher of Jesus. This is what it says in Galatians 2, starting with verse 9. It says, In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, talking, this is Paul speaking, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which, we, which I've always been eager to do. So James, Peter, and John, they're confirming the leadership of Paul. His teaching, the only thing they encourage him to do is continue helping the poor, which he was already doing. So Paul in this letter has quickly established his authority as a leader in the church, and then he talks about this confrontation that he has with one of the apostles, Peter. So remember, keep those questions that we talked about earlier in the front of your mind as we look at what happens here. It says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, had opposed him to his face for what he was doing was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some of the friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of the criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter's eating with these Gentile believers. Peter's having conversations with the Gentile believers. Peter is treating the Gentile believers as co-heirs, brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter has accepted the practices of the Gentiles, right? We even read in Acts chapter 10 earlier that Peter had a vision from God about the food laws and the Gentiles, the new kind of world of the gospel. Peter was the first to receive the understanding about God's acceptance of the Gentiles, He was the first to preach to the Gentiles. Peter understood 
from this vision that he should not look at the Gentiles as inferior people whom God would not redeem. A Gentile Roman officer named Cornelius asked Peter to come and share the gospel message with his household, his family. And Peter did so without hesitation. Peter's living out this life, living out this life of following Jesus with Gentile believers until this group of Jewish believers who claim to know James, and then all of a sudden he acts differently. This Specifically, this Jewish believer, this group, they were still wrestling with the old ways and the old rules of the faith. They believe you needed to follow Jesus with all the Jewish rules and traditions to be justified, to be accepted. They believed it was by your works that you were made righteous with God. It's under this pressure that Peter pulls away and stops eating with his new Gentile friends. Let's pause here real quick. I think, I think we've all fallen victim of this in our own lives, right? If we can look back in, in the rearview mirror, I think it's all happened to us. And I'm not just saying it's happened to us. I think we've actually done this to others, maybe purposely or not. When we act like we don't know certain people at certain places, when we act like different people in different environments or with different uh, people, when we act like we value certain things in one environment and then we get to this other environment, all of a sudden those values don't transfer. This impacts our relationship with other people and our direct relationships with those that are closest to us. And this happened with Peter as well. Because he conformed or gave in to this peer pressure, we're told that it impacted Barnabas and the other believers. What I admire about Paul is he goes right to Peter. And he talks to him about his concern. Here's how it's captured in the letter. Paul says, When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the tradition of the Jewish, the Jewish traditions? The crux of this matter is Peter and these legalistic Jews were following the truth of the good news that even Peter knew and agreed to. The truth that Jesus had died and rose again. He offered salvation to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Both groups are accepted by God, not one or the other. And because of that, they are equally accepted to each other. Jewish believers separating themselves from the Gentiles implied that they were superior because of their race, because of their traditions, because of their law-keeping. The good news clearly shows that people do not become accepted by God by the things that they do. It's only through faith in Christ and acceptance of his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace that we're saved. That's what Paul is saying. It's also important that Paul's not trying to elevate his position either. He's already talked about how his authority has been accepted. Paul recounted that in this letter even when it comes to the opposition of another apostle, because the gospel is at stake. This was not necessarily like a, a secondary faith issue that sometimes we talk about that's blown out of proportion. This confrontation fits the crisis. Paul spoke directly to Peter in front of all the others. And we might ask ourselves, like, why didn't Peter do this privately? Why didn't he pull Peter aside? Wouldn't that have been more peace-giving? And wouldn't that have been more loving? Isn't that the Christian thing to do, Right? But Peter's action had started this domino effect, and it impacted the community at large, not just one single person. A private solution to this problem really wasn't an option. Peter's action 
was a public, and so the public consequences need to, to follow. I've heard it said this way. A public sin or wrong requires a public apology. We might say in this instance, a public sin or wrong requires a public confrontation. Now, I'm not saying this is a hard and fast absolute rule, but there is certainly times and places this is true. Paul's rebuke in this instance had to be public. As a leader of the Jerusalem church, Peter was setting this as a public policy by pulling away and saying the Jewish believers were right. Obviously, everybody knows Peter's Jewish background. Paul's wording here also indicates that they know Peter had set aside these Jewish rituals and ceremonial laws as well. Certainly, the vision that Peter had and his experience with Cornelius had cured him of any prejudice he had against these Gentile believers. And by siding with these legalistic Jews, he's now saying, wait a minute, there is a difference. Peter is playing right into these Jewish believers' hands, appearing as though he believed what they believed, that you needed to become Jewish in order to be justified or saved. And by separating himself from the Gentiles, Peter was supporting the legalistic Jews that not only was that the way to do it, but the Jews are better than the Jews. While Peter's change in policy about having meals with Gentiles was harmful when he pulls away, the change in policy over the Lord's Supper and how they might come together as a community would be disastrous. If the group was divided over sharing these common meals and then it kind of bleeds into the Lord's Supper as a greater community, it would have likely crippled the church and may even destroy the church. For context, it would be like if we were doing communion, we're getting ready to uh, take communion together, but we said, you've got to make sure that everything here is based on our good works, right? And whether or not we could see those good works, you could prove those good works, it's a set of tasks, these, these, these things we had to outwardly prove, that's the only ones then could take communion. That's what they're wrestling with here. Listen how Paul lays this out for Peter in the church in the following verses. He says, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. More on that in a second. Yet, we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ not because we have obeyed the law. It says it again. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. He says it a third time. Paul states clearly that they are Jews by birth, yet being a Jew by birth isn't enough for salvation. Paul's phrase, sinners like the Gentiles, was said ironically because of the scornful names the Jews applied to Gentiles. Paul's actions had conveyed a holier-than-now attitude that the Gentiles were still sinners unless they became Jewish. Both Peter and Paul knew better. Paul states that they both believed that. Righteousness, being made right with God, can only happen with faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law or a set of rules. We can't do enough. We can't be enough. We can't earn our way into a righteous relationship with Jesus Christ. They have both been preaching this, right, for the last at least 14 years that we're aware of. This has been Paul's total message to the Gentiles for his whole entire ministry. And we've already been told that Peter affirms Paul's mission and his ministry. 
God justifies people despite their guilt. He pardons them and makes them children, heirs of him, by his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. If people could be saved by obeying the law, then Jesus did not have to die on the cross. No one will ever be saved by obeying rules or the law. And I'll be honest with you. In my default life, I am a rule follower. I follow rules. If we play a game, I want to know the rules first. Mostly because I want to find the loopholes in these rules. There's always a loophole. But secondly, I want to hold you accountable to these rules. This is why I love golf. It's a game that cheating is honestly rampant in. It's a game that tests your integrity over and over. And a little insight on Andy Rainey, I mean, I beat myself up when I don't follow the rules. When I bend a rule or break a rule, if I do something that's out of line, if I, if I miss somebody's expectation, if I let somebody down, when I know better, I mean, I heap on the shame and pile on the guilt. So if there's a big part of me that loves that our faith isn't about a bunch of rules and earning our way to, into God's favor, because I'd be exhausted trying. I'd have rules on top of rules. I'd be a Pharisee for sure. But there's this other part of me that would really love it if God would say, hey, just follow these rules and you're in my favor. Right? Want to be one of God's kids? Great. Do these things. Don't do those. I'd be like, perfect. I got it. Not only that, I'm going to be the best at it. Right? Like That would be my mentality. And if I'm not the best, I'm going to die trying to be the best. This is the kind of wrestle these legalistic Jews are struggling with, trying in their own strength to be good enough and then pointing the finger to everyone else that isn't. Right? This is what they're doing. But as we know, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Forgiven people have a change of heart because of the change that God does in us. And that's the beauty of our faith. The challenge of our faith are the rules we put on our faith. Paul explains this very challenge to them. He says, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, Paul says, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of the law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. He says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Paul responds to objections that might be raised. Things like, well, if we, if we seek to be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, but still sin, then isn't it not Christ who makes us sin then, right? If he's changed us, we shouldn't sin anymore. How could Paul claim that justification by faith is effective if we are still sinning? To say that it doesn't matter is to say that the standards and moralities don't matter, which leaves then the door open for us to become believers in Jesus and then do whatever we want. Paul re Paul's reply is very clear. Sin does not result because we are justified. Christ is not responsible for promoting our sin. Obviously, those who have been justified, those who have said yes to Jesus, can and still do sin 
I do too. This is the part of our human nature. Sin actually reveals our need for justification, not the other way around. This is why repentance is so important in our faith. It's through the acknowledgement of our sin and the understanding that it's only by asking for God's forgiveness of that sin that we truly understand and see God's need or our need for God's mercy and his grace. It's when we understand our sin that we understand that we cannot be justified by our good works and that it is only through faith in Christ that we're truly justified. The legalistic Jews saw following Jesus as an excuse to kind of get out from underneath the Jewish law. Justification by faith demands a lifestyle and behavior change. That happens because of the power of God. He comes in and starts to change us. When God truly gets a hold of our life, nothing can remain the same. It's out of our relationship with Jesus and the love we receive from Jesus and the love that grows in our life for Jesus that begins to change us. That's what changes our actions. Grace does not abolish the law with its standards and morality. Instead, it moves from this impossible external standards of all the rules that we need to follow to an inner motivation for living a pure and God-honoring life. Justification by faith tore down this merit system that we need to hold ourselves to with all these standards and an attempt to create this scoring system, system with God. Paul is saying, why would we want to rebuild that system? He's saying it isn't the cross plus our works and rule following. That's not how it works. That's not the equation. Paul said the situation in Antioch with Peter, uh, he saw this situation clear. It was, it was an illustration of the necessary burdens that someone had to place on these Gentile believers. They did not have to follow these rules, Jewish laws and rules. Peter, through his actions, was pulling away from the thing that he was actually preaching. And he's giving the law a place of authority that it had no longer had authority in. It no longer held that authority. Justified people will sin. Saved people aren't saved from sin. But we are saved from the power and slavery of sin. The real sinner is the one who's justified and then returns to this merit system, this this law, the one who receives forgiveness for their sins and then goes back to working for their forgiveness is actually the one still sinning. And that's the irony of all of this. The person who's working to be saved is actually the guilty person and can be better described as lawbreakers than law keepers. The law cannot give salvation because no one can keep it perfectly. Only one did. Oftentimes, our law-keeping can show up in simple things, like trying to do all the things the Bible talks about, right? It's about our behavior modification. I just need to be better. i got to be more polite. We're always working about the things that we're not instead of just seeking the spiritual transformation that Jesus actually offers us and walking freely in that. The best the law can do is prove our own situation and how much we need a Savior. Paul turned his life over to Christ, and we can too. We do this when we relinquish our old life and turn to Christ for his life. To accomplish this, there must be a radical cleansing of our old sinful nature. There must be a, a turning to the empowering offer of the Spirit of God. Just as repentance, we turn from our sin 
That's what repentance is. When we turn towards Jesus, we must turn our old self and then look to the new self that Jesus offers us. Paul no longer focuses on life on trying to please God by obeying a bunch of laws and rules. Instead, he focuses on the reality that Jesus is alive in him, and he tells us that we can live the exact same life that he lived. So I'm going to read it again for all of us. This is in your insert as well. So follow along on your insert. You can also follow along on the screen here. But when I read it, read this personally. Put you in those verses. The I is every one of you. So I, Andy, am a sinner. And then I, right? Like, it's me personally. It's you. If I rebuild the old system of the law that we already tore down, when I tried to keep the law, remember, this is you. It condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. We can't meet all the requirements. My old self has been crucified with Christ, every one of us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me, Christ that lives in you. So I, we, live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right, there would be no need for Jesus to die. As followers of Jesus, we live in our bodies that are prone to sin while they remain on this earth. But with Christ in charge, with Christ leading our lives, we are new creations in Christ. New creations living by faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus, that's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of learning to live as one of God's kids. In pursuit of Jesus in his word. In pursuit of his spirit. In pursuit of the heart of Christ. And the life he has for every one of us. It's nothing more and it's nothing less. It isn't Jesus plus my wants and desires. It isn't Jesus plus a bunch of rules and regulations. It isn't Jesus plus all the good works that I do. It's just Jesus. Now imagine all that peer pressure talk we talked about earlier. Imagine in all of our circles of influence that we have with people. Imagine if the peer pressure those people felt when we're with them in those environments, at those places, was simply the peer pressure to love others well. Man, that would be powerful. Because as we love God well, we will naturally love others well. And those of us that are parents, isn't that what we want for our kids? To love people well? To love well? There's only one person that can help us do that. Only one father that can change us from the inside out. That's our heavenly father. He loves you. He is for you. And he desperately wants to lavishly pour out his love on his kids. Won't you be one, right? Won't you be one of his kids? Won't you just live in that? They mentioned earlier, like we have three of our kids at this retreat. There's like 600 kids there. We have 21 in our little church. It's phenomenal to see the hunger in these young people's lives for God. My son's birthday yesterday, we gave him the option. You don't have to go this 
you don't want to, it's your birthday. He's like, no, I want to go. And I can't wait to hear what God has done as our kid. Can't wait to hear how much they've grown. They're creating their own faith. And this is what I say all the time. Like, it's an expense to send our kids to these camps on the front end. But then on the back end of this, when I hear the stories, I go, what a great investment into their spiritual life. Well, our whole life is like a retreat, right? Like, this is how we could approach each day as one of God's kids. God, what do you have for me today? Help me to see people as you see them. And that's an easy prayer to say right now. It's really difficult to walk out this door and go to lunch and think, let me see this wait staff through your eyes. How can I love them well when they get my order wrong? Right? We don't know what their life's like. How can I love them well when they forget to fill up my water, which is one of my pet peeves. I stick it out of the table. Like, the simplest thing, just fill up the water. Like, how can I just love them well? How can we do that in every aspect of our life? Because so much is given to us. And it's not about doing this because that's the, the loving rule, right? You can't move, move this into a behavior modification thing. It's got to be because of the love that you lavishly have received from Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers, the gratitude that we have, that he begins to change us and we see things differently. He changes us from the inside out. We are loved well. Let's love others well. Grab your Connect card that Jana mentioned. And if you haven't done so, as much peer pressure as I can put on you right now, <laughs> fill that thing out. Because we believe God has a next step for you. And by filling this out, we truly believe you're saying, God, I'm ready for that next step. I'm open to what you have for me. We're going to encourage you, maybe even peer pressure you, to write down your next step and drop it in the offering in just a few minutes when it goes by. I look at these. I pray for those. You can write your prayer requests on here as well. But the first next step is this. Accept Christ for the first time. Maybe you've not made that decision officially. And today's the day that can forever change your life when you turn away from your old sinful self and you turn to Jesus and say, I want the life that you have for me. If we could change ourselves to be the person we wanted to be, we would have already done it. Jesus is the one that can begin to change us. He's the one who starts to change us from the inside out and we start to walk in this life we never knew we could have. If you've made that decision today, mark that on your Connect card. Drop it in the offering when it goes by. Make sure you grab some resources in the back. They're absolutely free. And I encourage you to consider being baptized with us in, in just a few weeks. Our memory verse for this series is right out of Romans. It says, The Spirit Himself testifies to our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we shared in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. God's spirit enters our life, becomes active in our life when we say yes to him. We're one of his, his kids, as we would say it here, one of his children. We have access to everything the kingdom offers, the kingdom of God, here and now. We talked a lot about that last week. Here's our application. Accept Christ's love. Pursue the love of Christ. Live our lives out of the overflow of God's love as one of his kids. The more we pursue 
Jesus, the more time we spend with Jesus in his word, in prayer, with other believers, the more the forefront that he is of our mind, the more we will naturally live out of that overflow of love. When we truly can grasp the forgiveness that he offers, the gratitude that we have, I've been trying to practice this in my life more and more. And it's hard. I encourage you to write them down so you don't write down the same things. It's easy to go, I'm grateful for my kids. I'm grateful for my wife. I'm grateful for this life. I'm grateful to be your pastor. But then to go, wow, I'm grateful for my health. Grateful for the last 48 plus years. Grateful that the sun's out today. You really start to, I'm grateful that I could go out to lunch anywhere I want almost. Right? Like, go anywhere we want. But we take so much things for granted. And the more we live in that, the more the love we'll actually receive and the more we'll be able to pour out. The last next step is receive prayer. You can write your prayer requests on this connect card and drop in the offering when it goes by. You can leverage our prayer request, our prayer wall in the back. You write out a prayer request and everybody can see it. Then I encourage all of you to pray for those, the ones that are faced towards the wall. And I ask you to respect that. And our prayer teams and staff will pray for those. You can email us at prayer at lewashcc.com or you can receive prayer here in person. We'll have prayer teams in the back corner here, up, uh, up on my right over here. This is a great opportunity. I love the challenge that Craig had us do, like pray out loud for our kids and for those leaders as they're wrapping up here in the next hour, their uh, worship set, their prayer time, their weekend. It's a great way to really ignite our faith is through prayer individually, together, but even here in person. So if you have a prayer request, we'd be honored to pray for you, whatever's going on in your life. We believe God still heals today. So if you want healing, we're going to pray that God does it. But I encourage you, if you've had that little nudge in you that maybe I should go get prayer, cross that line of fear, whatever it takes to come up and receive it. We're going to go ahead and receive our offering if you want to drop your connect cards in there. While they're doing that, if you want to grab your communion elements. And this is a great reminder, as Paul said in this letter, that Christ is in me. This is this reminder for us that Jesus' body was broken, which is what the wafer represents, and his blood was shed, which is what the juice represents. That when we receive communion, we take it as a family, as a community here. We're reminded that Christ lives in us. Not just a metaphor, not just for them, it's for you if you said yes to Jesus. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is active and alive in you. Let me pray. God, thanks. Thanks that we can see the messiness of our faith, the messiness of relationships in your word, and that you give us these principles and ways to, to navigate these, these difficult times. God, I pray right now that we were able to recognize where we use peer pressure, where peer pressure has a negative influence on us, who those people are, what environments they are. And God, I would just pray through your Holy Spirit, you help everyone navigate those situations, those peoples, those relationships in a healthy way. I know for me, when I came to Christ, I had to pull away from a group of people before I could re-engage because I was felt like I was at a spiritually good place that I could navigate those things well. But God, I still wrestle with peer pressure. Applying it 
and being on the other side of it. God, in those moments when you give me, when you give us strength and courage to live for you, not for them. God, help us to navigate those moments not with shame and not with guilt, but with just confidence in who we are in you. God, would you let your love flow freely through us that people would not just see it, not just recognize it, but they would feel it, they would know it. That we wouldn't have to speak it was Jesus' love. They would just know, boy, that's got to be from God. God, help us to love you well so that you can help us love others well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be free to sit or stand. Let's say prayer.